But right now, we're going to read from the Bible, and uh, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, and um, today's part starts at verse 13. So that's going to be up on the screen behind me, but if you've got a Bible, um, great to have in front of you as well, so you can follow along. So Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, it shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, good morning. Great to um, be with you again this morning. I'm Jeremy. I'm, I work here during the, well, not at the school, obviously. I work at the church during the week. Um, and um, I'm the lead pastor here. Great to have you with us this morning, whether you're a member here and a part of those community groups that Jacob was talking about before, or you're just visiting or you're finding out about Jesus. So good to have you with us uh, and a really fitting week to be with us as well. Um, just to kind of double on what uh, Jacob was saying about summer, it's going to be a great summer to get into. We actually can do Christmas stuff this year, so you know, let's hit it with double enthusiasm because last year we thought we were going to and it got cancelled at the last minute. So we have all of that pent-up Christmas spirit to kind of get stuck into two years' worth really this year. So that should be great fun. Um, and the series in Proverbs is going to be great. Most people start the year thinking about what goals I want to set for the year or what kind of things I want to achieve. Proverbs isn't so much concerned with our goals as with the kind of person you're becoming. But the con- main concern really of Proverbs is of character and how it is that the gospel shapes you and transforms you into a different kind of person. So in a, in a kind of a twist on the sort of New Year's resolutions things, we're going to be moving through Proverbs looking at character, what kind of people God might transform us to be. So again, look forward to that. Um, but one thing I wanted to draw your mind to, I realize it's a lot of announcements and we're umming and ahhing about doing this this week because there's so much going on. But there's a bit of an opportunity that's come up and, um, and I think we've got a chance to make the most of it over this week. And so I'm going to be throwing this over to you guys this week. 
Uh, Andy, who works here, um, is a social worker. Why don't you stand up, Andy? Just so everyone knows. Yeah, give her a clap. Why not make her feel more self-conscious? Yeah, that's all right. Um, but um, Andy's a social worker, and they are collecting Christmas presents for kids who've had a pretty rough year and find themselves in a pretty vulnerable position. And so we're umming and ahhing because we know we've got a lot on whether we can do this, but I thought, look, let's give it one week to give it a red-hot go. And so next Sunday, we're going to be taking a collection, and we have a chance to fulfill the command to love your neighbor as yourself. The truth is, if these kids were your kids, you'd want to love and serve them at Christmas time. And so in being Jesus' church in the world, we want to fulfill that command and to do that. And so next week, we're going to be taking a collection for these presents. And I'm just going to embarrass you one more time, Andy. Could you just tell us a little bit about what would be helpful to put in these packs? So we've got one week to get this together. You'll get a reminder this week, but we just want to give it one go. Give us a quick rundown of what would be helpful to put in them for the presents. Anything just quickly on like a, a price guide that would be kind of reasonable? Okay. So I'm getting, the, I'm getting a strong vibe for anything <laughs> is where we're going with it. Right. And it'd be best to present at one present at a time. Anything. Whatever you got, we're going to put it in a pile and it's going to go to kids who really need it. Does that sound doable just in a week? I know we've got a bit going on and more coming up with Christmas, but I just thought that's come onto our plate. I thought that's somewhere we can really serve the community. So one week to get that done. I figure a shorter time frame is better than longer so we don't forget. But here next Sunday, bring them and Andy will collect them up. What a great way to be generous at Christmas time. That's going to be a great thing to get, a part, uh, get into. But today we are, we are getting into Matthew 16, uh, the 16th chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, which is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, and eventually his brutal death and his resurrection. And Matthew is a disciple who we meet in the Gospel of Matthew, who was a tax collector, which at the time was not the equivalent of an accountant. It was someone that people didn't like. They worked for the Romans. They took money from their own people, and they often took more than they needed. And he's written down this account because his life was turned upside down by Jesus. And he's writing it because he wants you to know that Jesus is worth giving everything to. Because the truth is that everyone, no matter who you are, is looking to be happy. This is one, I guess, unavoidable fact of human existence. Blaise Pascal, who was a 17th century French mathematician and philosopher, summed it up in this way. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. You see what he's getting at? His, his observation of, of human experience is that everything we do is a decision about what will make me more or less happy. Even as you got up this morning, if you had an alarm set, 
the decision to press snooze another 65 times or to get up the first time is a decision about what will make me more happy. To get out the door and even to come here to this church gathering was a decision for you about what will make me most happy. That actually everything we do down to the least calculation is a decision about happiness. Do I tell the truth? Do I lie? Do I go for big decisions like this career or that career? All of it is a decision about what will make me most happy. It is unavoidable. Blaise Pascal says the reason that some people go to war and others avoid it is exactly the same reason. The belief that one or the other will make them more happy. For one who believes that going to war and the chivalry of it will kind of be worth living for goes to war. The one who figures avoiding it, even if they get labeled a coward, it's still worth it because I'll be alive. Every decision is about happiness. And every culture, therefore, has a belief about what the path to happiness is. Some cultures believe that it's in holding to tradition. Others believe it's in putting family or religion first. But for, what, for our culture, for, an Australian, for Australian culture, for Western culture, for a city like ours, what is the number one primary belief about what the path to happiness is? If you could summarize it in a sentence, what would you say is the path to happiness that we believe exists? I would put to you that if you were to summarize it as, as, as succinctly as you can, it would be this. We believe that the happiness will be found in self-discovery. That when I find my true self, I'll be happy. And if you don't believe me, look, it's everywhere. It's on, it's on social media. How many, how many Instagram posts have you seen that have been like a picture of nature with a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote saying, what lies behind or in front pales in comparison to what? What lies within? The answer is inside you. The reason that travel is important is as you go overseas, you might, it might trigger some kind of self-discovery and you find your true self and you'll be happy finally. Even educational institutions get into this. A uni adver advertisement from last year, I think, was saying, we believe in a world of unlimited opportunity for those with talent, drive, confidence and ambition. It's about what's inside you, not where you've come from. So even unis know we need to tap into this belief that self-discovery means happiness in order to get you to come to the uni. And the idea is, if you come to this university, you might discover your true self. It might put you on a track to genuine happiness. Even when it comes to relationships, I know this is a bit heavy and philosophical for a Sunday morning, but Taylor Swift uh, has a video. <laughs> and at the end of it, it says she lost. It was about a breakdown of a relationship. Shocking, I know. But she says she... I'm a fan, by the way. Just, that's friendly fire. She says she lost him but she found herself and somehow that was everything. So even a breakdown of relationship can be redeemed because it might trigger in you an understanding of yourself that might lead to self-discovery and might lead you to living out your true self and you'll find happiness. But the most interesting one was even the army is using this. One of the most recent campaigns for recruitment was called See Yourself in the Army. The idea that as you join the army, you might find your true self. Now, last time I checked, if you go to war, you, you may find your true self. Something else may happen also. So it's kind of interesting that the, the lure for joining the army was the idea that this might put you on a path to self-discovery. But I think even they understand that it is such a deeply held cultural belief that you, you can't get around it even when recruiting for, for the military. And that's why what Jesus says today is going to be so shocking. Because what he says about finding life and happiness 
is actually in direct contradiction to what our culture believes about finding life and happiness. Jesus is going to say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says the answer to life doesn't lie within. In fact, it will lie within denying ourselves and going after Jesus. But I, get, I reckon if you understand what Jesus is really saying here, you'll see the depth and wisdom of what he has to say to us this morning. And so I'm going to pray that as we open Matthew 16, that God would be teaching us and showing us Jesus as he really is, and that we might understand that life is found in him as we die to ourselves and live to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are infinitely wise, that you are good, and we know this because you sent Jesus to die in our place on our behalf. And so we just pray that as we read these words, you would help us to understand what you have to say to us today, that it might be for the glory of your name. Amen. So for context about what's happening here, where we came from last week was that Jesus was condemning a bunch of religious teachers who had said to Jesus, Jesus, will believe in you if you do some kind of incredible sign for us. And Jesus responds to them by saying, you're not going to get anything. I'm not going to give you any sign. All you get is me. And if that's not enough for you, then it's not enough. And that's why with so many people getting Jesus' identity wrong, that's why he gets so kind of hyped in this passage when somebody gets it right. We're going to pick it up in Matthew 16, 13. And it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus takes a little bit of a poll and says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? What's on the rumor mill? What are people saying about me? And they say, well, some are saying you're like Elijah, famous Old Testament prophet, maybe come back to reveal God to his people. Others say John the Baptist, who actually died recently in the story of Matthew, but some people superstitiously believe that John the Baptist had actually risen back to life. And some are saying that that's who Jesus is. Others are saying Jeremiah, an old prophet. And then Jesus says, all right, all right, let's cut through all of that then. Who do you say that I am? And Simon, Simon Peter rather, steps up to the plate and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is shocked. And do you know why he's shocked? Because no one has got it right so far and the least likely person to have got it right is Peter. Think of it like this. We kind of went through this a few weeks ago. Peter was the guy in the disciples who was low in ability but high in confidence. And if you were to think of it, we're in a school, so if you think of it in a classroom context, he's like the class clown almost. And so you can imagine a teacher asking a really hard question and then the class clown pipes up and you think it's going to be a joke answer and they get it right and you're like, that's actually right. Yeah, you can kind of feel Jesus being stunned here. He kind of says, Peter, that's, that's actually the answer. Well done. But then he kind of goes on to say, and wow, God the Father must have revealed this to you because there's no way that you would have got this right without him. Look at what he says. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying here is that to understand who Jesus really is, not to understand him as a historical figure, anyone can do that, to acknowledge that he existed is really not that significant, but to understand that Jesus is the Christ, that is the King that God promised to save his people, and not only the Christ, but actually your Christ, your King, the one that you follow, the one whom you are aligned with and your allegiance is for. He says in order to make that kind of realization, it has to be revealed from God the Father. It requires a supernatural intervention. And so Jesus here marvels because Peter gets it right and he's like, oh my gosh, God must have revealed this to you. And then he goes on to explain the implications of this. Look what he says as he follows on. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now here Jesus is punning a little bit. It's not as obvious in the English translation. But in the Greek, he says to him, you are Peter or Petros. We kind of get the word petrification when something becomes hard like a rock. And it means rock. And he says, you are Petros. And on this Petra, that is another rock, I will build the church. After Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the king, the one who will rule God's people and restore all things, the one that everyone's been waiting for. He says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then he says something a little strange. I don't know if you noticed it in there. He says, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And so on. You think, well, what does this mean? What is Jesus saying here? That he's going to build his church on Peter? That Peter's going to get these keys? That he's going to bind and loose things? What is all of this about? Well, I can tell you first what it doesn't mean. Some have used this particular verses, among others, to establish the fact that there should be a head of the church, a pope, who is able to speak on behalf of the church and has papal infallibility, meaning what they say is really very much the word of God. And the idea that what is bound on earth is bound in heaven, what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven, is the idea that Jesus is giving this person an authority. It's an office that's created so that there will always be one head of the church who fulfills this incredibly authoritative position. Now, I really don't think that that's what the text is saying here for a couple of reasons. The first is, if that's what's really meant by it, it's a little bit shocking that just one sentence later, Peter gets something so wrong that Jesus almost calls him Satan. That would be, that's quite a fall from grace, right? If he's been given this power of being able to say absolutely anything with the authority of God, it seems strange that he'd get it wrong in the very next sentence. But also, when you notice what's on display here, it's not Peter's authority, but God's. I mean, Peter gets this answer right about who Jesus is. And the first thing Jesus says is, wow, God, God the Father must have revealed that to you. And then not only that, but Jesus says, Peter, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's on display here is the absolute authority of Jesus, not of his disciples. In fact, the meaning of what he's saying here is that Jesus says, Peter, on this rock, this incredibly unimpressive, little, dirty, pebbly kind of rock, 
I'm going to build an incredible building which I will call my church. And it's going to be built on ordinary people who have nothing special about them, but they're exactly like Peter, people who have no particular gifting or power or preeminence in society, but just simple people that God has revealed himself to. He says, that's what I'm going to build my church on. And not only that, but he says, in fact, my purposes in this world are going to be worked out in the church so that when the church does something, as the church shares the gospel and people actually get saved, then God, using the power of all heaven, is actually saving people. And as people reject the gospel, they're in fact even rejecting God and the power of heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm going to use regular, ordinary people to work out my purposes in the world. You know what? This story, this vision of Jesus' church and Jesus' story about how he's going to work things out has worked its way into every almost corner of narrative in our culture. The reason Stranger Things is so popular, and it might, be, it might have switched now because there's been like two Tiger Kings or something, but last time I checked, which is like a year ago, Stranger Things was the all-time most popular show on Netflix. Is that? Can anyone fact check that? No, okay. All right, getting a few shaking heads as well. Well, Stranger Things 4 is coming out next year, so we'll see what happens then. Um, but the reason, the reason people love the story is because you get these kids, so not adults or grown adults or people with power or influence, you get these kids, and they're not just any kids, they're nerdy kids. They're Dungeons and Dragons kids, right? So they're kids who get picked on by other kids. So not only are they kids who don't have much power, but even within their sphere, they're not very powerful. And then you put them up against this overwhelming evil force, and yet somehow there is this grand sovereign power for good that is working throughout it so that they end up overcoming this incredibly overwhelming evil force. That's what we love about the story. That's why you get engaged in it. These incredibly powerless people by this kind of almost miraculous intervening of things, overcome an incredibly overwhelming evil force. Jesus is saying that's his church. Ordinary people like Peter. Nothing special about them. Just that God the Father has revealed who Jesus is to them. And he will use them, he says, to build his church, his purposes, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's an incredible vision. And that's church. And that's the group of people that you're amongst right here now. As you look around, these are the people that God is using to bring about his purposes in the world. In fact, this is all it's been since Jesus' time on earth. He's used ordinary people like you and me to bring about his purposes. The reason we are here, thousands and thousands of kilometers from where Jesus originally preached this, is because he has used his church, his people, to pass on the gospel message. And they've been saved and the power of heaven has worked through them, and they have passed on that gospel message to generation after generation. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He says, Peter, on people like you, I'm going to build my church and my purposes, and nothing will prevail against it. Now all of that sounds pretty great, but as he, even just as soon as he said that, here comes the bad news. Look at what happens next. In Matthew 16, 21 to 23, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. 
This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. After confirming that Peter got it so right about Jesus' identity, that he was the Christ, within a single sentence, he's just got it so wrong. Jesus says, you are right, I am the king. And I'm going to establish God's people forever and God's purposes forever. But it's not going to happen how you think. In fact, the way that I'm going to triumph over sin and death and evil is not by reigning like a regular conquering king, but I'm going to sacrifice my own life. I'm going to die on your behalf for your sin so that you can be forgiven and set free. And when Peter hears this, he's like, no, 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 Jesus, that's, that's not how it's going to play out. You're the Christ. You're the one who's meant to rule. You're going to knock out the Romans and then whoever else is out there and then you're going to establish God's kingdom on earth. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He says, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. The way that God plans to bring about his purposes is not the way that we often plan to bring them about. Not with grand conquerings and posturings. Instead, it's going to be through God humbling himself to the point of death, even on the cross, to save his people. And at this point, Peter just doesn't get it. He misses it entirely. And Jesus says to him, get behind me. You don't have the, you don't have the right approach to this, the right mindset that actually the way God is going to work out his purposes is actually going to be quite shocking. And then he goes on to say, and even more so, what it's going to mean to follow me might not be what you're thinking either. Look what he says when he lays out what it's going to look like to be a disciple of Jesus. In Matthew 16, 24 to 28, he says, Then he told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then you'll repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the clincher really, isn't it? Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to use ordinary people like you. And the way that God will work out his purposes in the world is through these ordinary people. But then he says, it's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. It's not going to be all victory marches and military conquests. Actually, it's going to come in almost the opposite way. It's going to start with me dying and then it's going to continue with my people following after me, being willing to lay down their lives to follow me. And it's counterintuitive here because he says, if you actually want to find life, it's going to mean losing it. Now, what exactly is he saying here? What is Jesus saying when he's saying to people, to follow me means denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. That finding life will mean losing it. And trying to save your life, uh, sorry, that you're yeah, trying to find your life will mean losing it. And losing your life for my sake will mean finding it. Well, what he's not saying here is that in order to follow Jesus, what it is is basically you have to do all this bad stuff that you don't like doing as kind of religious service. And at the end of time, if you've done enough of, of that kind of stuff and you've missed out on enough good things, then God will approve of you. Now, it's clear from the passage, the one way to be right with God is by trusting in Jesus the Christ who has died for your sin. 
But what he means here is that if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to mean giving up authority of your life over to him and saying, Jesus, whatever you say is the way to find life is the way to find life. Whoever you say I am is who I am. Wherever you say I'm to find happiness is where I'll find happiness. It's giving up authority over our lives to the one who we believe genuinely has the authority to rule over us, to be a good king. And the reason we resist this so much, maybe particularly in our culture especially, is because that is directly opposite to what feels like the way to find happiness and to find life, isn't it? Again, we deeply believe that the way I will find life and meaning and purpose and happiness, however you want to explain it, is by finding my true self. The answer is within me. And Jesus says, no, instead, it's going to be in me. But there are situations where we know that they feel counterintuitive, but we trust someone else's advice because they have more authority than us. Think about it like this. The advice is that if you are caught in a rip, so if, you're, if you are out of your own depth and you can't actually swim against it, unless you're an incredibly strong swimmer, the advice is that if you're caught in a rip, that every instinct in you is wanting to swim back to shore, but you need to reject that instinct and you need to just let it take you out. And once it's finished, then you can swim back in safely around the rip. Because if you swim against the rip, you're going to exhaust yourself and the risk is that you'll drown and die. And so the hard thing about it is, when you are caught in a rip and you feel yourself going further and further away from shore and further and further out to sea, it feels like you're actually going towards death and yet this is the thing that's going to preserve your life. And the thing that's meant to, I guess, get you in that moment is you think, nope, people who know about this stuff, who have more experience and more authority than me, say that the right thing to do is just to let it take me out and then swim safely back into shore. But in that moment... It's the most counterintuitive thing possible, isn't it? To just let yourself be taken out. It feels like the way to die rather than the way to live. And yet in that moment, the more you struggle and try to save your own life, the closer you get to death. That's probably the best possible way I could explain what Jesus is saying here. Many people will feel like surely the way to find life and meaning and purpose and all these things is to do it myself. And Jesus says, as intuitive as that feels, it's wrong. That actually the way to find life is to lose your life to Jesus and to follow after him. And his authority for saying this is that he actually came to die in your place on your behalf. That we all have sinned and turned away from God and tried to build our lives without our creator and author. And the consequence for that is death. And Jesus says, there will be a day when you'll come before God to give an account for your life. And the only way to stand there before God and have him say, well done, my child, is to trust in Jesus. And so Jesus here is saying, if you want to find life, it's going to mean losing it, giving it up and following him rather than trying to find it yourself. And so my question to you would be, if you are here and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, what's holding you back from trusting him? So I reckon there is, enough, there is enough evidence, even in our culture, that trying to find our own lives is not working particularly. Someone's described it in this way, that sometimes it feels a little bit like life when we're trying to build our own lives and do it our own way, 
It was almost like playing pass the parcel with no prize at the end. I don't know if you've ever done that, but at one of our kids' parties, I forgot to put the prize in the <laughs> middle of the packet. And so there was all this anticipation that at the end dissipated. I just had to throw something in the circle to kind of patch it all up. But some of us said that often that's how life feels. You think once I finish the HSC, then kind of life will begin. But then it's, it's on to either uni or a trade or something like that. You're like, well, once I've got my career going, then I will have found life. And then you kind of get that, but then there's still, it, there still feels like something's missing. It's like, well, once you get married, then after that, you will have kind of found life. But then you get married, and there are all kinds of difficulties with that. And then you go, well, once we've got kids or a house or so on and so on, it seems like this endless unwrapping of things. And in the end, what we're looking for doesn't, still seems to not be there. Jesus claims to have the thing that we're looking for, life and life eternal. That actually there's more to this life and there is a life beyond this life that we need to factor into our calculations about what it means to be, to be happy. And that he has the answers. That he will build his church and the gates of hell will prevail against it. That he alone has the answer to life and to death. I encourage you, if that's a question that you want answered, to get it answered. You can join us for Alpha even today. It's a course just kind of laying out the claims of Jesus. We'd love to have you with us. It's a great lunch and a great time to explore and ask questions. But if you haven't asked these kind of questions, really, what more important question could there be to ask? But if you are a follower of Jesus, what's the implication for you? If you are here and a follower of Jesus, the call is to live life knowing that you have found life in Christ. That He is the one in whom everything you need exists. That He is the one who has saved you, has redeemed you from death, and the one whom you are to follow after and to lay down your life to follow. But I'll put to you this. If you do not believe that the pursuit of God and the pursuit of happiness are the same thing, I don't think you'll make it very long as a follower of Jesus. Let me say that again. If you do not believe that the pursuit of God and the pursuit of happiness are the same thing, I don't think you'll make it very long as a follower of Jesus. And the reason is that unless you believe that He is the one in whom all happiness is found, then it will always feel like following Him is the kind of thing where you're like, I really have to put off what it means to be genuinely happy in order to do these things that I'm not really sure are for my good and, and, a, and an expression of God's love toward me. And I reckon it's, it's even the case, and I think many Christians after following Jesus for a number of years lose this sense that it is a joy and privilege to follow Christ. And you can kind of settle into a pattern where it's almost a bit like the purpose, the reason God saved me was just that I might stay away from any catastrophic level kind of sins until he kind of comes back and fixes everything up. You can think of it in this way. Again, it's a lot of teacher illustrations today. I don't know, I've been, I was in the school yesterday as well. Mel, my wife, had a dance concert here, so maybe it's just in my head the whole week. But when I, when I, was, when I first was a teacher, I, remembered, I remember the shock of meeting teachers who clearly did not like kids. And I remember thinking like, if I didn't like swimming, I probably wouldn't become a lifeguard. And yet there are people who genuinely did not like kids who were in teaching. And as a new teacher, they kind of... Um, would, would, would sort of speak to you with the tone of like, like when you brought some, some kind of enthusiastic idea to the table, there was always the sense of like, 
you'll grow out of that, right? Or like when you try and do something new and innovative with teaching, they'll be like, oh, bless, you'll grow out of that. You'll see there's really no point to any of this and you'll be one of us in a number of years. But I was wondering how it was the case that so many people and some of these teachers who, who genuinely didn't like kids and who spend their day being harassed by these kids, I thought, how, how are you even holding on? There are just so many other careers out there. But then I found out what happened in the 70s. In the 70s, and I don't know all the details of the arrangement, but, uh, but there, was, there was basically the government had laid out a, a pretty significant retirement package for teachers in order to get people into teaching. And they were like, if you stick around to your 65, you'll get it. If you quit at 64, you get nothing. But if you make it all the way, you get the whole deal. And then I was like, that's what it is. So all these, people, all these teachers who checked out 30 years ago are still here because they know that payday is coming, right? And they, they're, just, they're kind of doing the minimum they can do to not be fired uh, in order to just sort of get through day to day. Now, I reckon sadly, sometimes maybe without meaning to or whatever it is, the Christians can almost slip into the same mindset. The following Jesus is like a pretty rubbish job with a great retirement plan. And I'll just kind of, I'll do the minimums or the stuff you've got to do to just sort of get it done. And then when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be great. Can I put to you that Jesus' vision for discipleship in Matthew 16 is not that. He is saying... Look, what point is there gaining the whole world if you forfeit your soul? If you know me, you have life and life eternal. If you die to yourself and follow me and trust in me, you will find life itself, joy, meaning, purpose. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm worried that many Christians have kind of checked out of that and it's just become a matter of habit and just getting by, avoiding any sort of catastrophic sins, and just checking by until Jesus comes back. Now we are called to be a people who have found life and who rejoice in it. To follow Christ is not a rubbish job with a great retirement plan. It's to find life itself, here and now. And it's not that you have to follow Jesus, it's that you get to follow the one who died for you and laid down his life for you. And so I want to encourage you with one thing in this. If it is the case that Christ's people are to be marked as people who have found life and have found joy and meaning and purpose, then we should sing like that's the case. I don't know how it is for you, but often a barometer for me for how closely I'm walking with Jesus and understanding the depths of the truths of the gospel and how good it is to follow him is often marked by my singing. And we've had a strange, well, a couple of years now where in many ways, even as a church community, the habit of singing has been pretty disrupted. And even now, even this morning, you've got to sing with masks and the like. But the reason that God's people have always been a singing people is because the gospel sets you free and sets you free eternally. And because you have done nothing to gain it yourself, there is every reason to sing. And so I want to encourage you that as we finish now, and as we have a chance to sing after this, that you would consider the depths of the gospel the blood of Jesus poured out for you, and then it might move your heart to give voice to that and to rejoice that there is a Savior and His name is Jesus. And that you know the Creator of the universe because of the sheer mercy and grace of God, not because of anything you've done, but simply because He has been merciful to you. I'm going to pray. Father, we praise You 
that because of the gospel, there is no thing, no work that we can take credit for. But it's all because of Jesus. That you have revealed to us who Jesus is. That he is the one who died for our sin in our place. That we might be forgiven and set free. That we might have life eternal. That we might be able to stand before you on the final day knowing that we've been saved and saved completely. And so may we be a people who find joy in you. We know that it's our joy to follow Christ. And that as we die to ourselves and instead follow Jesus, that we would see that in this is life. Father, we pray all these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.